Here we go. Testing, testing. Better. Okay. Well, praise the Lord. I actually finally have my voice back. Mostly, it's pretty much there. There's a little bit of gravel in it, but uh, there was another famous atheist who's not living anymore. But he once was asked a question: What kind of evidence could convince you that God exists? Well, this man, Bertrand Russell. It's a little small, but he said, I think that if I heard a voice from the sky predicting all that was going to happen to me during the next 24 hours, including the events that would have seemed highly improbable, and if all these events then proceeded to happen, I might perhaps be convinced at least of the existence of some superhuman intelligence. But so far as I know, no such evidence exists. This was his answer to the question, what kind of evidence would it take you to convince that convince you that God exists? Well, we talked about this on the first night that, you know, many people have come to say, yeah, maybe God is responsible for evil. Now we answered that question, but the jury for some people is still out. You know, you look at the COVID-19 pandemic and the uncertainty that it caused in this world. We recognize that no longer can we say that nothing can change overnight because in an instant, everything changed overnight. I was speaking to a group of uh, young people last year and, and young people have become more and more unsettled than ever before because, you know, I remember when I went through high school, went through college, I never thought that we would come to a moment where everything shut down. But now we recognize that that can happen overnight. But it's not just COVID-19, riots, racial tensions, there's war in Ukraine. And most recently, just this past Sabbath, on Saturday, war broke out in Israel. And there's fighting, bloodshed, and terror. Food shortages is another thing that looms over us. Um, The World uh, Food Program wrote this. Recently, as many as 828 million people go to bed hungry every night, the number of those facing acute food insecurity has soared from 135 million to 345 million since 2019. A total of 50 million people in 45 countries are teetering on the edge of famine. Is there hope for the future? This is the question we're asking. Well, as we look here at this simple graph depicting the rise in disasters from 1970 all the way to 2019. This isn't even the most recent graph that has come out charting all kinds of disasters. We recognize a stark uh, trend in the upward direction. And people are beginning to say this is the result of climate change. We need to take decisive action. And wherever you stand upon this issue, people recognize that the world is on the brink of crisis like we've never seen before. In fact, we're starting to realize that we can't keep up with the amount of money that disasters are costing us, not just in the United States, but globally and around the world. This graph shows you the difference between severe natural disasters. If we were to rewind all the way back to 1900, and this just takes us to 1970, and you can see that within 70 years, there was a major increase and natural disasters. Now, why is this all significant? We talked about just in the last two months, we have the war in Israel, Hurricane Idalia, the Morocco earthquake, the Libyan flood, the war that continues in Ukraine. 
Excuse me. Well, Jesus told us that these things would happen. In answer to the questions that the disciples had from him in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 8, he told them that at the end of time there would be wars and there would be rumors of wars and that there would be earthquakes and pestilences and all these things would be signs leading up to his soon return. We are witnessing this very thing happening, not just sporadically, but at an increasing and alarming rate with intensity and severity. So what hope does the Bible give us? What hope does the Bible give us? You know, the New England Journal of Medicine says in recent times, the scale, scope, and severities of these events has markedly increased. Since 1990, natural disasters have affected about 217 million people every year, and about 300 million people now live amidst violent insecurity around the world. <coughs> the world recognizes things are changing. If you have your Bibles... We're going to continue and we're going to ask the question, what hope does the Bible give us? But before we answer that question, we need to look at some bold claims that God makes. God makes some very bold claims. The first bold claim is in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Could somebody give me some water? Maybe Jason. Thank you. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So, God is claiming that his word is inspired. Okay, this is bold claim number one. Okay, meaning that we should be able to trust in the word of God, but it gets better. The Bible is going to tell us some more fascinating things. If you join me in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 8 and 9, the reference is in your notes tonight. This is what God said in the Old Testament. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images, behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell them to you. Okay, so God is saying, I declare new things to you before they even happen. It's quite a bold claim. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I tell you new things before they even come to pass. Well, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10 makes it even more clear. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsels shall stand, and I will do my pleasure. Okay, so we're looking at some bold claims that God makes. And if these claims were found to not be true, then God's word would not be inspired as he says it is. But as we study tonight, I believe we are going to find that God actually follows through with what he says. That he actually does declare the end from the beginning. That he does tell us of things before they come to pass. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21 is a very important verse because God does not ask us to just blindly follow. If anyone tells you you just need to have blind faith, they are lying to you. They are twisting the scriptures. God does not ask you to just blindly follow. He says to you, Test all things and hold fast to that which is good. And this is why when we study the word of God, as I'm speaking tonight, my invitation to you is to test all things and to hold fast to that which is good. 
There's a lot of people who talk about the Word of God, but are they sticking true to the Word of God? Okay? Don't take my word for it. Take the Bible's word for it. Test all things and hold fast to that which is good. God actually wants you to have an intelligent faith. Tonight, we are going to be taking a journey through some incredible stories that prove God's bold claim to be 100% true. The first of those stories is a very interesting story, which you'll have to do some research for yourself. But it's found in Ezekiel chapter 26. And I put this passage of scripture in your notes tonight, but you can look there. Ezekiel chapter 26 and verse 7 is where we'll start. You can open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 26 too. And this is a prophecy concerning the city of Tyre. Now, if you know anything about history, Tyre was, was a significant city back in the day. But God tells Tyre through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, with horsemen and an army, with many people. He will slay the sword. He, he will slay with the sword your daughter villages and the fields. He will heap up a siege mound against you and build a wall against you and raise defenses against you. He will direct his battering ram against your walls and with his axes he will break down your towers. Because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons and the chariots when he enters your gates as the men enter a city that has been breached. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets and he will slay your people by the sword and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant horses. They will lay your stones, your timber and your soil in the midst of the water. I will put an end to the sound of your songs and the sound of your harps shall be heard no more. I will make you like a top, like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading of nets and you shall never be rebuilt, for I, the Lord, have spoken it, says the Lord your God. So God makes this incredible and bold prediction about the city of Tyre, telling them that their glory is going to come to an end. Now, if you look this up, the siege of Tyre, you're going to find that everything that we just read actually came to pass. Nebuchadnezzar did come and conquer. The book of Ezekiel was written years before Nebuchadnezzar did this. Not only that, but what it talks about, the trees and the stones being cast into the water, a part of the city of Tyre was actually out on an island. And Alexander the Great, years later, would come along and actually push all the rubble into the ocean, creating a causeway upon which he could go out and bombard the last remaining city of Tyre. And Tyre fell, and now today, if you look it up, one of its prominent sources of income is fishing, just as God said it would be. You guys will become a place for the spreading of nets, talking about fishing. God's word came to pass. It's quite an interesting history. But now we're going to delve deeper back into the book of Daniel. While Tyre was left desolate, just as the Bible predicted, we're going to look at a prophecy that showed us several thousand years, actually, of history. So let's go to Daniel chapter 2 if you have your Bibles tonight. Now, I didn't put all of Daniel chapter 2 in there because I actually want you guys to open your Bibles up. I put references so you can take notes, but I want you to grab a Bible as we go to the book of Daniel tonight. Daniel chapter 2. 
Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1 to 3. Now, if you remember, we left off the story in Daniel chapter 1 where Daniel and his three friends have made a bold stand. They said, you know what? We're not going to partake of the king's meat. And they were found to be 10 times wiser and smarter than all the other magicians and astrologers and all their other peers. And as a result, Daniel is exalted to a high position in the kingdom. And his three friends also but they're going to keep getting exalted as we go through the story of Daniel. Now, let's pick up here in Daniel chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. Daniel chapter 2, let me get there myself. Um, And we will begin in verse 1. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1, the king has just had a dream, and this is where we pick up the story tonight. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams where his, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep departed from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to show forth uh, the king's dream. So they came and stood before him. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream and my spirit is troubled to know what the dream is is. Now something you have to understand in their day, in the ancient Near East, the dreams of kings were extremely important. Okay? They were considered to be messages from the gods, announcing, among other things, possible misfortunes for the king or the kingdom which they ruled over. As we'll learn tonight, God clearly sent this dream to Nebuchadnezzar to reveal his will. While the king didn't recognize it as the voice of God trying to speak to him, he reached out to other sources for help. That's an interesting question for us to ponder today. Do we recognize the voice of God when he speaks to us? To whom do we turn when he tries to speak to us? Do we turn at once to God's written word to find counsel? Or do we seek other voices of wisdom? Okay, King Nebuchadnezzar, knowing no better, he turned to his wise men, trained in the arts of divination and communication with the gods, to test them. Now we pick up the story in verse 4, and it says, Then spake the Chaldeans to the king and Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. Okay? So they come to him with a little bit of flattery, O king, live forever. And this was actually a common saying in their day, because Nebuchadnezzar had this idea that his empire was going to last forever. Now, lasting forever meant that it would last for about a thousand years. That was about as far as they uh, had thought about. But they came to him, some nice words, you know. You're not going to tell the king anything other than something nice. So they say, oh king, live forever. Just tell us the dream and we'll give you an interpretation. But then we come to verse 5, and the king responds. He says to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces. Your houses shall be made a dunghill. Okay? So the king was very quick to anger. He was not always very emotionally intelligent. He was ready to just wipe out all his wise men if they couldn't tell him the dream. The wise men tried to buy some time as you keep reading the story, right? They're like, just tell us the dream, you know, and, and we'll, we'll be able to tell you the interpretation. But then we notice in verse 9 that Nebuchadnezzar sees through 
their lies. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 9, But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For you have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me. Tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation thereof. No king had ever requested something like that before. The Chaldeans, they answer saying, hold on, like, this is impossible. There is not a man upon earth, verse 10, that can show the king's interpretation of the dream. Therefore, there is no king, lord, or ruler that has asked such a thing of any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. Nebuchadnezzar could see that these wise men had no true connection with any of the gods. And it's interesting, you know, the world can see a distinction between those who are connected to their God, the living God, and those who are just professing something, but not living. You know, we always call it, you know, are you walking the talk, right? And Nebuchadnezzar could see that these guys were totally faking it. And he was looking for something. He was so troubled that he was looking for something genuine and true. Well, praise the Lord that we're about to encounter the genuine and true because of Daniel. The decree goes out, just as Nebuchadnezzar had warned them. If they could not come up with the interpretation of the dream, he was going to kill them all. So he sends the decree out, and they start gathering up all the wise men. And we come down to verse uh, 14. And they come to Daniel. Then Daniel answered with, the count, with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and desired the king that he would give him time that he could show him, the king, the interpretation. So I love those words there, right? Daniel with wisdom and counsel. That means that when Daniel had attacked about him. He was respectful of the king, but he was also courageous enough to go forward and ask for time. Daniel goes forward. He asks for time. Time is granted to him. Daniel moved by faith based on his previous experience that he had gained in chapter 1. If Daniel hadn't have stood for God's principles in Daniel chapter 1, then the book of Daniel would not exist as it does today. It would probably be written by someone else. But Daniel, he took decisive action. And this is what faith means. If God has said something, we move by faith. Daniel knew that his God was able to understand what troubled the king. And so he goes by faith. And God honors him for this. He didn't sit around. He didn't have a pity party. Oh, how terrible is this that I'm about to be killed? No, he spoke up. And he did something. Faith requires action to be effective. This is important for us to understand as Christians in our own personal walk with God. Faith will always require action to be effective. This is why James would write, faith without works is dead. I can say I believe in Jesus, but my life has also got to reflect that. So Daniel, he had a faith that was moved by action. And we read here in verse 
17, that Daniel wasn't trusting in himself. What does he do? Then Daniel went to his house and made these things known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, the three friends that stood with him in Daniel chapter 1, that they would desire mercy, the mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, and Daniel, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Okay? Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said in verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He is the one that changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. This is an important scripture for us actually as Christians. This scripture is clear evidence to explain to all Christians why we are not to be politically involved in this world. Because God is the one who sets up kings and removes them. My mission as a Christian is not political. I'm fighting for the heavenly kingdom. And Daniel recognized that. You know, too many Christians, they allow politics to guide their experience with God. We see this playing out today. We have the alt-conservative right that stand on the alt-conservative right side of things with the Republicans. And then you have a more liberal division of Christianity that stands with the Democrats. You know what side we should stand on? God's side. I'm not a Democrat and I'm not a Republican because they both have their pitfalls. But when I stand for the Lord, I'm standing on the right side. And that's the battle that we need to be fighting. And Daniel knew that. He says, God is the one who reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what is in darkness and the light that dwelleth in him. So what we're starting to hear is this is sounding a lot like what we read earlier when Isaiah declared, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. So what we're about to see is God is actually faithful to his word. Daniel is declaring it. Daniel's declaring that the God I serve, the God of heaven, is the one who is ultimately in control. Even though there are bad things that happen in this world, God is the one ultimately in control. And we're going to see a picture tonight that shows us what God is going to do, even at the very end of time, to right all the wrongs. Okay, so here we are. Oh, king live forever is where we left off. But now we're going to see Daniel's approach to the king is very different than the Chaldeans. He's not looking to flatter the king. But he comes in as a very humble man. And this should teach us some lessons about how we should act as Christians. Okay? Now, there's another promise in Scripture that I love. Right? Daniel and his three friends. Daniel simply steps forward in faith, if you remember, right? They're coming to kill him and his friends. And he says, hold on, let me talk to the king. Because my God can show me the interpretation. Then he goes and he praises his three friends. And what does God do? He answers. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 24, a promise that we should all remember, says, I, It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. God was ready to answer Daniel and his three friends before they even began to call upon him. Because our God is faithful, and our God loves us, and he has a plan for us. Now, we continue on. Daniel is brought before the king. 
Arioch, of course, wants to come in and take some credit for it. He's like, oh, king, I found these men. But Daniel is the one who spoke up. Daniel's the one who, who told Arioch, I need to go speak to the king. So you see this difference, right? The Babylonian principle, the spirit of Babylon, is to exalt self. But God's people are looking to give glory to God. It's a different motive. God's people give glory to God. The spirit of Babylon or the spirit of the world is to always exalt self. To always say, you know, oh king, live forever. You know, to flatter and to be fake. Now we pick up here. In verse 27 of chapter 2, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king had demanded cannot the wise men, astrologers, and magicians, and the soothsayers show to the king? But there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to King Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. So notice that Daniel does not take any credit here. He's like, there is a God in heaven. He's the one who reveals these secret things. Verse 29, As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter. And he that revealeth secrets maketh known unto thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living. Again, look at Daniel's humility. He isn't boasting here. He's not like, I'm someone special. He says, no, this isn't revealed to me because I'm special. But rather, for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation of the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. That you may know the thoughts of your heart. Now, I've got a question for us tonight. Why does God give us prophecies in the Bible. Well, as we just read, there were actually three reasons given. Three reasons given. Did any of you guys notice the three reasons given in those verses 27 to verse 30? Just feel free to shout out. You know, there's not like a wrong answer here. Just see if there's any reasons. There's three reasons. I'm going to put this on the screen. It might even be in your notes. I might have left this in your notes. I can't remember. Bible prophecy. It reveals what will happen in the last days of the end of time, okay? So, if you read that in verse 28, but there is a God in heaven that reveals the secrets and maketh known to King Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days or the last days, okay? So Bible prophecy reveals what will happen in the last days of the end of time, okay? So this is why God gives us Bible prophecy. Secondly, we're going to notice that Bible prophecy reveals that our God knows the secrets of the future, okay? That's made clear in several places. Um, As for thee, O King, thy thoughts came into thy mind, verse 29, Upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. So Bible prophecy not only reveals what will happen at the end of time, but it reveals that our God is the one who knows the secrets to the future. And lastly, and most importantly, this is the most important detail about prophecy. Prophecy is not just about facts and dates, but notice this. The last verse, verse 30, it reveals that God cares about the deepest thoughts of our hearts. If you read verse 30, Daniel says that you may know the thoughts of your heart. The king was troubled. But God was coming to him in a very special way because he cared. And the end of Nebuchadnezzar's story is quite beautiful. He actually is the only heathen 
to write a chapter in the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar is actually converted and gives glory to God by the end of his story. But tonight, as we're studying in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, for the first time, is beginning to realize that there is a God in heaven who actually cares about the deepest thoughts of his heart. And this is what God is after. God is after our hearts. He says in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God, God wants to change our hearts. He wants to change the way we think. He wants to, to fill us with his love. And I can think about that in my own journey, you know. Um, I've, I've grown up in, in a Christian family, but as I've said before, just because you grow up in a Christian family doesn't mean you're guaranteed to go to heaven because salvation with God is not about lineage, right? doesn't matter who your parents are. doesn't matter what they've done for the Lord or haven't done. It's a personal choice. You have to choose to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. Jesus says, I've died, I've paid it all. Lay your burdens down. I remember um, one summer, it was about a year before I went away to a Christian academy. And um, for those of you who don't know, this is Mount Hood. It's a beautiful mountain um, close to where I grew up a couple hours south of where I grew up. And I had been on this mountain climbing expedition for about a week almost. And we were at base camp at 9,000 feet on this mountain preparing to make a summit attempt the next morning when a storm rolled in that night over 4th of July weekend. This was like 2013, 2014, I want to say 2013. And uh, it was quite a beautiful night because before the storm rolled in, Mount Hood overlooks the city of Portland and the Hood River area and the place where we were, we could actually see all the way down to the city of Portland. And so we saw all the fireworks going off for miles and miles around. It was kind of a neat experience. But then the storm rolled in and we were facing, you know, 70 mile an hour winds throughout the night, just hoping that we weren't going to get blown off the mountain. And so we ended up having to cancel our um, expedition to the top of the mountain. But that night as we're there, you know, me and my three buddies in the tent, um, one of my buddies is bragging about, you know, something that he had done recently with his girlfriend. And, you know, I'm not going to go into details because I don't want to give glory to sin. But um, I spoke up and I was like, you know, this is what God's word says. As <laughs> I'm sharing with him these thoughts. The Lord convicts me. And he's like, you should practice what you preach. Because I also had a girlfriend at that time. And I, you know, hadn't gotten quite into the danger of what, you know, this young man was doing and some of the dumb things that were taking place. But I was pushing the boundaries myself. And I was living a double life. And I'm there that night. And the Lord's like, you just need to practice what you're preaching. Because you're not. You're not living it. You're a living, walking, talking hypocrite. And I had been. I had been running for my parents. I was upset with them. They were trying to correct me. I was disobeying all of their rules. I was very much so one of those 
rebellious teenagers, and I did it in different ways. All teenagers, they have their own way of going about it. But I remember that was kind of the first time in a while that I had really heard God speak to me. And it was the first time that I stopped and I was like, where am I heading in life? If I keep on this course, where am I heading? And that night is, I sat there thinking, rebuked, because I was that prideful person that was quick to speak, quick to point the finger, quick to show somebody, hey, I went back to the Bible for myself, and I started reading through the book of Romans. And I encountered a God who was loving, forgiving, and willing to help me move on and actually practice what I was preaching. To not be that hypocrite. And this is what Bible prophecy shows us. You know, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was, he was a mighty man. I mean, you, you, we know the stories in history. I mean, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It was one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. Like, Babylon was a magnificent city. King Nebuchadnezzar had a lot to be proud in. And we're going to see that when we continue in his story, he, he was quite a proud man. But God loved Nebuchadnezzar. And if God loved Nebuchadnezzar, he also loves you. And I know that God loves me. And if God loves me, then he also loves you. The Bible says he died for all of us. It wasn't like, you know, I'm just going to die for Millie. But I don't know about that Jason guy. <laughs> you know? Like, the Bible says Jesus chose to die for all the sins of the world. There's nothing that you've done, there's nothing that I've done that can keep God from us if we will simply repent and turn from our ways. That's the invitation. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. I have power and it's mighty to save. I want to make a difference in your life. So now we come to this image, this vision that Daniel is now telling to the king. And he begins to tell him, you know, you, O oh king, and if you want a copy of this, I forgot to print it out. I actually have a printout that I designed that I can bring on Friday for everyone uh, of this very picture. But he goes through, you can read this in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 through 35. He goes through and he says, you know, you saw the head of gold, chest and arms of silver, the hips and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. Okay? Well, then we come to verse 36, and this is where he gives the interpretation of what this image means. And this is why I'm going to here, because we're going to repeat all these medals again. Okay? Daniel chapter 2, verse 36. This is the dream... And we will tell the interpretation there before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And whatsoever the children of men, and wheresoever the children of men dwell, and the beasts of the field, and the fowls of heaven, hath he given into thine hand. And he has made thee ruler over them all. 
You are this head of gold. So this image, this prophetic image we're beginning to see is representative of kingdoms. Right about now, as Nebuchadnezzar is hearing this great message, I'm the head of gold, he's got to feel pretty good. You know, I'm the head of gold. Gold's the most valuable resource. That's pretty awesome. But if you remember, right, Nebuchadnezzar's desire was for his kingdom to last forever, for a thousand years. That's why the magicians and the astrologers and the Chaldeans, they come in flattering the king, saying, O king, live forever. And this is how we know that Daniel's message is true. Because Daniel had the courage to say the unpopular thing. We keep reading. Verse 39. And after thee shall arise another kingdom. I'm sorry, King Nebuchadnezzar, but your kingdom will not last forever. After thee shall arise another kingdom to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth, and a fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron breaketh in pieces these things, it shall break in pieces and bruise. Verse 41, And whereas you saw the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. Okay? So here we go. We know that Babylon was actually conquered by Medo-Persia in 539 B.C. by the king Cyrus. In fact, in the British Museum today, you can go look at this. The Cyrus Cylinder recounts how Cyrus's army diverted the river Euphrates and then they marched right under the walls of Babylon instead of having to besiege the walls and conquered it in a night. After Medo-Persia came Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, historically, in 331, BC to 168, and after the Greek Empire, does anybody remember in history what empire comes next? I heard it, Rome. And it's interesting that the Bible uses iron because there's a saying that Rome ruled with an iron what? Fist. Fist. Rome ruled with an iron fist. So it's no accident uh, that the Bible uses these specific metals. In fact, Babylon being the head of gold was very fitting because it was full of gold um, historically. Then we come to the last part, clay slash iron. Rome divides in 476 AD into 10 different kingdoms. And the Bible says that it would never reunite again. We'll keep reading verse 42. And as the toes of feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas you saw the iron mixed with clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another even as iron is not mixed with clays. And in these days, and, the, and in the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall be, break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So now we get to the point where God says, my kingdom is the only kingdom that will last forever. Now, I want us to notice a few more details before we tie this all together and bring it to an end. If we go back to verse 41, we read that, whereas you saw the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron. The Bible doesn't use words by accident. It says the clay is potter's clay. Now, 
If you study potter's clay in the Bible, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 18, you read verses 1 through 6. You can write this reference down. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1 through 6, talks about God's people as the potter's clay. You are as the potter's clay in the hand of the potter, and I, the Lord, am the potter. Okay? So potter's clay is often used in the Bible as a symbol of God's people. So what we see here in the beginning of Daniel chapter 2 is that down at the feet of iron and clay, there's going to be this mixture. The iron represents the empire of Rome, which has never truly fully dissolved. The iron represents that civil authority. The clay, representing God's people, represents this mixture of civil authority with religious power. A mixture which can never truly work together. The United States was founded upon the principle of separation of church and state. Religion can have an influence on the government, but should not be in control of the government. That's the principle, right? We should not have pastors and priests in charge of the government. And the president and any of the senators should have no right to legislate against the religion. That's what separation of church and state means. But God is saying, at the end of time, my kingdom is going to stand forever. My kingdom shall never come to an end. Essentially what God is promising is I will bring an end to all the corrupt and despotic and tyrannical governments that have ever existed. And I will set up a kingdom and establish it in righteousness. And it will last forever. God was making an invitation to King Nebuchadnezzar to join his kingdom. And as we study his story, we're going to find that Nebuchadnezzar chose to join God's kingdom. Jesus is coming soon, and when he comes, he will put an end to all the corruption in this world. Jesus is the King of kings who will reign throughout eternity. You know, this Bible prophecy that we've studied tonight, It shows us four specific things. One, the complete uselessness of divination to forecast the future. The devil and all his power cannot tell you the future. No palm reader, astrologer, which has the power to do that. Two, God is the only one who knows the future, and he is the only one that can control or who has control over the future. Number three, we have learned about the miracle of prophecy. And number four, we have learned about God's invitation to Nebuchadnezzar to become a part of his kingdom. As we close, I have a story for you. It took place during World War II. During World War II, Franz Hosel was a soldier in the German army. And as a soldier in the German army during World War II, Franz had a hard time because Franz was a devout Christian. He was a devout Christian who read his Bible daily and he kept the seventh day Sabbath. His faithfulness was ridiculed by many. In fact, one day, Lieutenant Gustock walked by and said, Hazel, I see you reading your book of Jewish fairy tales again. He was made fun of, treated poorly, made to do extra hours of labor because of his different beliefs. 
Well, one day, towards the end of the war, as America and Britain were advancing, Hazel was called into a meeting before the general. And Lieutenant Gustock, who had been making fun of him and making his life very hard, was also present for this meeting. And as the general is talking, he asks this young man, Franz Hazel, if he thinks that Germany will win the war. And Franz says, no, Germany will not win the war, and here's why. He takes him through the study of Daniel chapter 2. And he goes through the succession of kingdoms as laid out. And he explains to him that Rome was to be divided and the Bible says that it would never unite again. Napoleon tried and failed. The European Union has tried and failed. Hitler was trying to rule over all of Europe again, the ancient Roman Empire. And we know historically Hitler failed. But at this time, this young man only knew God's word to be true. And so he says a very unpopular thing to his general when he says, no, Hitler will lose the war. And here's why. Well, the general, turns out, was actually a history major before um, becoming a general in the army. And so he asks Franz if he can have his Bible to look over this prophecy. The general takes a week and studies out, and he comes back to Franz, hands him his Bible, and he says, I need you to start rationing our oil and gas, to start setting it aside so that when we lose the war, we have enough oil and gas to get back safely to Germany so that we don't become prisoners of war. He says, everything that you have shared with me in this prophecy in the book of Daniel is true. And so Franz begins laying aside oil and gas. And thanks to Franz's courage, all the men in his division were saved. They all made it back safely to Germany. Because a young man stood up by faith and said, the word of God is still true today. And Hitler will not win this war. You know, it's interesting. We started tonight looking at an atheist remark, Bertrand Russell. I think that if I heard a voice from the sky predicting all that was going to happen to me during the next 24 hours. Well, we've just studied one of several prophecies where God predicts not just the next 24 hours, but several thousand years of history. And God predicted it just as it happened. Now, there's more exciting prophecies that we'll be digging into. But I wonder, perhaps, if this would have been enough to convince Mr. Russell that there is hope for the future. That God is a God of love. And that when this world is suffering at the end of time, that God is patient and he will have a people that will stand for him. Let us sing our closing song tonight. 
Jesus is coming again. Number 213. Number 213. Please stand with me. Just as Nebuchadnezzar was given the invitation to join the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said to each one of us, seek first the kingdom of heaven. And in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, we're told that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. He has not forgotten that he is planning to come again. But he's long-suffering, patient with each one of us, not willing that any one of us should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's desire. He's prepared a place. He's coming again. And he's looking for a people that will stand for him. Friday night, we're going to look at God's plan to bring an end to sin. If you won't want to miss it, we'll dive deeper into prophecy. And we're going to see that God is not just doing nothing, but he actually cares. And he has a plan to bring an end to the pain and suffering that goes on in this world. Let's pray. Father God, tonight we've seen a small glimpse that you are the God who knows the future. You are the God who declares the end from the beginning, who tells us things before they come to pass. Lord, the appeal to Nebuchadnezzar is pretty simple to join your kingdom. And so, Lord, it's really our desire to seek first your kingdom. And if that's your desire tonight, as all heads are bowed, I just invite you to raise your hand. If it's your desire to seek first the kingdom of God, just raise your hands. Lord, you're long-suffering and you're patient with us. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your forgiveness and, and we want to come to you in true repentance, trusting in the King of kings who is soon to come to take us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.